0: knowing what body this character has really drops me actions in. the thesaurus that has become like a bible to creative me. visualization that really set me
1: free I love actioning very specific action <laughs> welcome, back. welcome back to season two my name is Thank
0: Anne Penner, and,
1: I'm, I'm, an sure. and I'm, I'm.
0: I'm an associate professor of theater I'm an associate professor of theater no that's not true <laughs> <laughs> hi everyone we are back for season two, episode two. We are really excited uh, and pointed out as we were getting ready to record that in some ways, this episode is the culmination of a conversation we keep having over and over again that weaves in and out a lot of the other topics that we have discussed. But in some ways, it's Really different than the other topics that we've discussed because it's not a particularly actor centric topic. So, today we're talking about casting, and we really have enjoyed sort of taking a step back and to think about not only the process of casting, which we started to discuss in our last episode on auditioning, but also what is the role that casting plays in the art form more broadly and how can it help or hinder storytelling, which is really the underlying purpose of theater and acting in general. So we kept coming back to this idea when we talked about casting of alignment of actor and role or alignment of actor and character. And we don't mean alignment in necessarily um, a perfectly one on top of another the way that you align two pieces of a Ziploc bag to get them to um, mm-hmm. to, to lock
2: or a car gets its alignment
0: fixed right <laughs> whatever that means right yeah it, it kind of has some like anti-creative associations I guess like oh, we're bringing people back into alignment yeah. getting them in line right it sounds very square
2: I think I think what <laughs> excites me about that word and it was just a word we didn't intentionally start using but we started using it repeatedly um, sort of by accident is this idea of an alliance or an agreement between actor and character and that there are the point I think we want to ultimately get to is that there are multiple ways to find that alignment potentially.
0: Totally. And so you might see it, whatever your favorite alignment analogy is, you might see it as a puzzle piece, right? Of fitting one thing into another. You might see it as um, identifying parallelisms, right? Between um, someone who's walking into the room as a performer and the characters that they're there to audition to play. Um, But if we really talk about this idea of alignment, the very first thing that we thought we needed to discuss and that I thought that there was contributions from the psychological literature on it is what is it that gets aligned? Like, what is it about people? Like, what are the fundamental aspects of people that differ across people that make you say, oh, yes, this person is more like this character than that one, or this actor is a better fit for this role than that one? Like, what are those fundamental building blocks of... Uh, of psychology. And the first thing that rose to my mind is that this is something that the personality literature has a lot to say about. So personality usually refers to traits that are relatively stable over time um, and that differ across people. For decades and decades, the central question of personality researchers was, What is the most efficient way to characterize variation across people Uh in these traits? So, like, what are the fewest number of personality characteristics that explain the most amount of variation or variance when you're doing these sort of statistical analyses? So there are a lot of different theories of personality, and one of the ones that is thought to be one of the strongest and most efficient ways to explain variation across people um, is that personality boils down to five main types of attributes or traits, Um, and the acronym to remember all five of these is the word OCEAN. So the word ocean stands for openness. The broader name for openness is openness to experience. The C stands for conscientiousness. Uh, the E stands for extraversion, which is probably the most famous personality variable. And a lot of the kind of freely available personality tests that you take have an extroversion um, uh facet to them it's also one of the easiest ones to measure you can usually be like hey how extroverted are you and most people sort of uh, <laughs> are able to answer that one question pretty closely uh, in line with with uh what you would get from asking more questions huh. um and then the a stands for agreeableness and the N stands for neuroticism. And neuroticism has some has had some like really specific connotations over the years, but neuroticism from the personality literature is sort of um, the most negatively valenced of the personality traits. So almost all the other ones are worded in a positive direction. So more openness, more conscientiousness. Extroversion isn't inherently better than introversion, but you get more of that. Whereas neuroticism is associated with more sort of um, negative mood, uh, more likely to... Uh, meet criteria for a mood or anxiety disorder. So neuroticism is a little bit more of that negative affective tone compared to the other four. One thing I love about
2: these five very um, straightforward uh, kind of objective traits is that personality just feels like this unwieldy, massive, humongous thing. Um, And just tying it to actors, I think, gosh, of the first four... It helps to be open to experience. It helps to be conscientious. It helps to be extroverted, to enjoy, to be fueled by the people around you. It helps to be agreeable um, as an actor before we even get into character.
0: Yeah, there have been a few studies on um, personality traits and how that relates to people who engage in different art forms. And so it is true that on average, actors tend to be more extroverted, for example, than introverts. If you look at some of the items that measure extroversion, it's... it's not surprising. So um, like some of, like one of the measures that inversely relates to extroversion. So relates to higher introversion is I don't get much pleasure from chatting with people. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, or um, I really like most people that I meet. Mm, yeah, And so uh, actors are a little bit higher than that, but it's interesting that just being on stage and performing um, it doesn't account for that higher extroversion because actually there's another group of artists that is lower on average um, on extroversion than like a non-artistic population, um, and that's stand-up comedians. Oh, so stand-up wow. comedians on average are actually more introverted, whereas actors are more extroverted. They both get up on stage, uh, you know, and do that, but there's there there is a sort of difference in in introversion and extroversion there. I wonder why. I don't know. <laughs> Stand-up comedians are also higher on neuroticism. They tend to be more self-critical. Uh-huh. And there's there's this very, like, uh, there's a sort of long tradition within stand-up comedy of channeling self-criticism into humor uh-huh. and not being sort of acceptable. Whereas, I don't know if this is, if I have data to support this, but I would suspect, actually, that um, actors in general are not as comfortable being self-critical. Um, so I just wanted to give a few examples of some of the items that commonly measure these uh, these five personality traits. Also, a quick aside about the sort of uh, commonly available personality traits, there are tons of, like, tests you can take about your personality. I mean, there's silly ones, right? Like There's the BuzzFeed, like, answer these eight questions and we'll tell you which Disney princess you are or whatever. Um, obviously, those are garbage, um, but very fun to do. Yeah. Um, but there, are, like there are common um, personality tests, like the Myers Briggs, for example, um, that actually there isn't a lot of evidence that those are a useful way to assess personality in terms of being able to measure traits reliably over time and breaking them down into the smallest number of traits that explain the greatest portion of variance. Those tests aren't thought to be super helpful. They can be, I think, useful just as a tool to kickstart introspection, right? So when I was Mm -hmm. in high school, I have a very vivid memory of being a high school junior and having my AP US history teacher give us a personality test and the output was four colors. So there was Mm -hmm. a gold, a green, a blue, and a red personality, Mm -hmm. orange, orange was the uh, gold, green, blue, and orange. And at the time, I was very blue. I've probably become a little bit more green um, mm. over time. Those of you who are f- unfamiliar with this test, you're like, oh. <laughs> um, but I actually had a big realization that my best friend at the time was super green and I was super blue and this like helped me explain why we sometimes talked past each other in right, certain situations. Right, right. So I think that um, I would never say like it's damaging to take some of those personality tests. I do think that sometimes I I hear about like corporations using them for um, really critical things like building teams and I cringe a little bit because I'm not so sure if that, if if they should be used for that purpose. The items from this test of these uh, big five, these are often called the big five personality factors that measure um, these aspects of personality well, I think could actually be really helpful as you're, an actor preparing for an audition or uh, preparing for a role to answer a few of these about your character and maybe even note in the back of your head alignment between yourself and a character or misalignment where like there's an an interesting disconnect to have to bridge. One of the items that measures agreeableness is I would rather cooperate with others than compete with them. Mm. Um, So there's a very social affiliative uh, sort of (laughs) component to agreeableness Um, One of the ones that um, measures neuroticism is I often feel helpless and want someone else to solve my problems. Yeah. Um, Another neuroticism one is I'm easily frightened. Uh, The conscientiousness one, um, this one is reverse scored. So there's one that says I'm easygoing (sighs) and lackadaisical. (laughs) So the lower (laughs) you score on that, um, (laughs) the more conscientious you are. A high-scoring conscientiousness one would be... um, I would rather keep my options open than plan everything in advance. Actually that's also a reverse word. So like being planning in advance would be high conscientiousness. When we started talking about this,
2: I got excited just as a curious human being about these five traits. But it took me a second to think about how it was helpful to align or match yourself or rehearse a character. But when you transfer these five, the big fives, into questions like that and into behavior and into active verb-oriented language, then all of a sudden it does become useful. So as you are trying to come to terms with how you and your character naturally, intuitively, without any work align... Uh, We both live life hyperbolically. We both feel emotions strongly and then figure out how to align the parts of yourself that are different. Yeah. I, you know, I strive hard to make people feel good. Well, my character seems like a bitch (laughs) or something that that which has happened to me, then that Um, I can imagine asking those questions kind of helps you to align or to create empathy with your character.
0: I mean, some of these, answering them, I think could give you really actionable information for certain, how to deal with certain, when certain things happen. So like one of the high neuroticism questions is, I often get angry at the way people treat me. Right. Mm. And so, like, imagine a character who's super high on this negative emotion, feels very wronged by everyone around them, just recognizing, oh, one of the key parts of that is people don't treat me the way I should be treated. Like, that's a really useful window and and a hint as to how to react at the smallest slight. Yeah. You know, whereas, uh, uh, yeah.
2: No, I'm thinking about that's actually useful as I'm thinking about sort of building a character <laughs> coming up is is uh, Anne generally feels like, she, for the most part, 90% of the time is treated the way she expects to be treated. But I am just thinking forward where I think, oh, yeah, that person might uh, often wish to be treated differently this to me this ties into uh, you know we want to talk about how to use this personality as a tool for understanding character we're talking about that and just pull it, referencing circling back to our first season with episode two substitution and the idea i just want to tie whenever we can back to what we've already talked about this idea of using these questions and stanislavsky's magic if what if that if i were in the character's situation mm-hmm. right set of given circumstances what if I were? How right. would I behave? And then that sort of personalizes, that begins to help me tie into the, the trace elements of the situation. And then I can ask the same question, well would the character behave the same way, right? Yeah. Um, I think is interesting.
0: Yeah, and I think that, again, because some of the items are very situationally bound, it's like when I am in this situation, I do X, Y, Z. It it gives you sort of hints as to how to build um, some of those ifs. Um, And again, I think one of the things psychologists love doing when we develop these measures is asking the same question in different ways. Mm. And we do that for measurement purposes, right? So that people don't get hung up on a particular word. But when we were talking about particularizing something, sometimes there's a word that sparks something, yep. right? So like one of the items for um, openness to experience, um, this again is, I, I keep finding reverse coded items, but um, That's okay. is um, I don't like to waste my time daydreaming, oh. right? And so like there's the, What oh, does that measure? Um, the openness to experience Uh Uh dimension. So people who are high on that are super imaginative, super, um, open to new things happening. Don't mind having strong emotions themselves or like don't feel threatened by that. Um, a lot of times, like as someone who's really high, high extreme and openness to experience is like maybe even like adrenaline junkie, like jumping off of clips, like everything's fair game, you know? Um, and, uh, But that item, I don't like to waste my time daydreaming for a character who's really, who agrees a lot with that statement, right? That says so much. I mean, first of all, daydreaming, ugh, yeah. so in the clouds. Yeah, and waste. And waste, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like that is and such a specific.
2: I'm, I'm teaching acting Shakespeare right now, and, and there's all these, uh, you have to attach yourself to all these words. You have to have mm-hmm. opinions of why you're saying choke instead of strangle, or art <laughs> instead of, um, I don't know, skill. Just made that up. Um, and, 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 you as actor and you as character have to understand why you're picking that word now. Yeah. And if as actor you don't attach to it, you have to figure out how to attach to it. Totally. Um, I one thing I just want to say is one one of the many things I love about acting is aging is good. And because I think the older you get, often the better actor you become because you simply have more lived experience. Mm-hmm. You have more self-knowledge. You know yourself better and then you have more substitutions you have more personal experience to attach to these imagined circumstances in the actor's character's life
0: totally so the other thing that is kind of interesting about the personality literature is that for years and years and years the personality literature kind of self-defined itself as measuring stable traits right it was like look there are some parts of people that are changeable and other parts that aren't and we are interested in the parts that aren't but the way we think about these characteristics like neuroticism and openness and conscientiousness do change somewhat over time. And so in recent years, there's been a recognition that even these traits um, do shift over time, that there are sort of consistent things that happen as people get older. There are affective changes. So on average, when people get older, they tend to get a little bit less negative and anxious and a little bit Mm. more positive. Not every single person, but that tends to happen. And... Um, you know, we all have different aspects of our personality that I think swell or come to the forefront at different stages in our life, and, you know, some people have used uh, this metaphor of having an anchor Of personality, so that there are some bounds outside which your personality will never change, right? If you are a relatively conscientious person, if you lined up all of your dolls, you know, by, Mm. you know, hair length when you were younger (laughs) and you are a planner and you like to get to the airport early, like you probably will not become a, you know free to the wind, like show up whenever we'll see what happens kind of person. However, there's movement, right? There is some movement and at different phases of your life, that is more prominent than others. And so if you have an anchor that limits your overall drift, that it can't go completely away, but. You have still a fair range right around that anchor. Oh, I
2: love that. You're making me think of my grandmother, my dad's mom. She was like that. She grew uh-huh. up in a pretty Christian conservative household. But then uh, as she aged, she started to drink sherry, she drank alcohol, and she played cards, and maybe she danced, How and daring. she talked about things she might not have talked about when she was younger. Were
0: her ankles showing when she played cards? <laughs> Sometimes they work.
2: <laughs> I adored her. Um, <laughs> and this, uh, I listen to many podcasts, and uh, there was one by a psychologist named Adam Grant called Work Life, and mm-hmm. he interviewed, I think, a f- pretty famous psychologist mm-hmm. named Brian Little, who I think works at Cambridge University. And that's where I first heard this phrase, the, the personality anchors, which I think is quite exciting. Yeah. Can you talk
0: about essentialism,
2: what that means? Yeah,
0: and so this... Um This extreme view of personality as well as other characteristics being very fixed over one's entire lifetime um, is one aspect of what people are now referring to as um, essentialism or uh, people having essentialist properties. So if you are a personality essentialist, you might think that you have whatever personality you have. There is individual variation in temperament, even in babies. And, you know, if you are a colicky, fussy, negative baby, you'll be a, you know, irritable old man, and there's just no changing between the two. Mm. And so... Uh, again, the most extreme view is that, uh, that these things don't change and can't change over time, um, which very few personality psychologists, I think, subscribe to the most extreme view of that. They do um, acknowledge that there is some movement over time.
2: One other thing I heard about the psychologist Brian Little was that he's curious about how people transcend their personality mm. traits. And I think that in some ways ties to an actor's opportunity to play characters they may not initially align with. And I'm, I'm realizing this has happened as just today. I was thinking about this. This has happened multiple times. Some of my favorite characters, I think, what me, 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 (laughs) me playing, you know, Savage and Savage and Limbo. Uh, she seems too harsh. She seems too something, uh, too masculine. And then I find great joy in playing these Mm -hmm. characters because I do the work to, to align with them. Um, the one other thing that I think is interesting is is these relatively stable, if not rigid, personality traits suggest that one's behavior has patterns mm-hmm. and repetition. And I think as an actor, our job when as we're aligning um, with the character, whether that's in preparation for the audition or during the rehearsal process, is to f- to look in the text for or to look in the, yeah, to look in the text for clues to the way this character repeatedly patterns mm-hmm. himself or herself.
0: Yeah, and again the the idea of pattern and repetition is uh, is aligned with the sort of more of the stable view of of personality is that things um are pretty observable um and cons- relatively consistent over time. So, we talked a lot in the audition episode about um sort of impressions uh and mm. we talked about competence and warmth as two of the dimensions um, that people tend to form pretty quick impressions of others. And we also talked about how different types of groups in different cultures are sometimes associated with stereotypes related to competence and warmth. So that women as a group, for example, at least in Western cultures, are stereotyped as warm, but not as competent as men. And there are lots of other ways in which group membership is associated with these things. So I think... You know, it's very rare (laughs) that, uh, you know, a casting director would take a personality test of, like, an Mm -hmm. actor or have Mm -hmm. filled out one of these personality Mm -hmm. questionnaires for a character. And a lot of times, I think, because a lot of group memberships, not all, are visually accessible, sometimes these stereotypes get used as proxies for these personality um, uh, dimensions, these personality facets. And so... A lot of casting, I think, especially historically, has relied on stereotype. Um, and it can be actually a really fine line yeah. between stereotype and a really useful concept like an archetype. Yeah. Right?
2: And, I, and I think we're kind of heading in the direction where we're going to question the value of stereotype and group stereotype in casting. I want to take a step back and actually... Um, talk about how differentiate between stereotype and archetype and how both are potentially useful. So stereotype, I have a widely held but fixed and oversimplified image or idea of a particular type or group of person. Um, so all, um, <laughs> all this is me, right? All uh, early middle age, uh, white uh, heterosexual married uh, women with kids all behave the same way, right? All drive Toyota Highlanders. Yes, they've
0: all got the <laughs> same car. They buy the right? same brand of all, shoes. Right. All
2: have the same five personality traits. The same level of openness. This is, of course, false. And uh, a friend of mine, who's also a psychologist, mentioned which blew my mind. But is obvious as that, actually, we tend to have more similarities with people in other groups than we do with with people in our same sort of group stereotype. Um, and then an archetype is a is a recurring sort of symbol or motif um, or a recurring sort of role in a story. Both of these are actually useful to begin to build character. Stereotype can be a starting point and it's, it's obviously way too, there's aspects, many aspects of it that are incorrect but there is some truth there. So it's a place to kind of begin and then you have to bury or dive kind of below the surface of stereotype to find more nuance and more specificity. Archetype, which my friend Allison was saying um, has so much value is, is, in some ways, you can look at it as the role that character, the active role that character plays in in the play. So Horatio is Hamlet's best friend from university. Uh, so he's the sidekick. I don't know if there's an archetype
0: that's a sidekick, sure, right? There is. So,
2: so that gives you information, not just about the static, stable personality traits of Horatio, but really how he behaves in relationship to Hamlet and, other, uh, and others. So that was just before we, we discuss uh, the problems with stereotyping and casting, I just want to mention that um, both of those things have some value.
0: Yeah. And I think the two pieces that you pointed out, that stereotypes are oversimplified and um, static, right? That those are the two things where they become really harmful and the... uh definition of stereotype that I have offered previously is when you replace or uh, do not seek individual information about someone because you know something about their group membership. So you sort of stop with your curiosity because you know about group membership or you assume that a stereotype that is associated with a group is true of them automatically because they are members of that group. And that stability is the essentialism, right? If you were like, oh, you know, all... All mothers, um, you know, worry about their kids because they're just constantly thinking about their children and the, where they are in the world and whether not true, or not they're okay. About, you know, <laughs> and it's constantly on their minds, and they're never are able to break free from that and do everything else. And until the day they die, that's what's on there. Like that is a such, uh, you know, again, that's that's an uh, overly rigid and and essentialized way of thinking about something. I'm looking on your bookshelf and seeing "Stumbling on Happiness" by Daniel Gilbert, and I believe one
2: aspect I haven't read this book. My husband did. Is that we we assign <laughs> um, some identity marker of a person, um, their race or their, um, you know, if they, how able-bodied or if they have a disability or their gender or there's, um, how much money they make makes that has more power <laughs> to how they live their lived experience, mm-hmm. right? That all, uh, all oh, middle-aged white men have high status. I'm just taking, I'm just pulling right. this sort of the power of of whiteness into like, well, then you always have high status, right? Right. Um,
0: well, I- and again, it's like when we talked about this sort of Angkor metaphor. Anchor metaphor or foregrounding certain aspects of your um, personality. I think uh, one of the big problems that happens um, with group stereotypes is when you assume that that aspect of their identity is always foregrounded, right? Yeah. As the people are walking around going, "I'm a Hispanic woman," like right. you know, I would like a latte for a Hispanic woman at Starbucks, please. Like right. that—that's the uh, that's your Hispanicness,
2: sort of, is, you know, is the thing that weaves through your whole life, yeah. every day, yeah, and then
0: and then, and it's always foregrounded, and so that. Uh, what what social psychologists have often um, referred to, and there's been a lot of experimental work on this, is that the more that we endorse these stereotypes, the more we're primed with these stereotypes. The more these group stereotypes are at the forefront of our mind, the less we think of people as individuals. Right? Yeah. We just think of them as one person who could easily be replaced with someone else in their group. And that process is referred to as de-individuation, right? That we are not thinking about people's individual preferences, what it is that they prefer in that moment, how they're responding, all the aspects that they might be similar to us that aren't visible from the surface. Um, And so we tend to think of them as unidimensional, as less complex than we are and as not as human, right? That there's something uniquely human about our own experience that is multifaceted where we have this past, present, and future and all of these different aspects of our personality and we're in this complex ocean with this anchor, Oh, but they're just one of the people who do this. Right, right. I love that.
2: I love that. So let's move on to sort of how an actor, um, and with the help of a casting director (laughs) and director, because they're the ones hiring you, um, can align. And and, and given what the beautiful way Kateri just articulated is, is... is sometimes there is this one-to-one casting, right? The person externally looks the part, right? Like John Hamm got cast as Don Draper. That's not necessarily a good example of one-to-one because he probably was cast for multiple reasons, but he clearly looked the part. James Gandolfini looked the part of Tony Soprano. Um, But if we keep in mind that, I love the anchor, right? If we keep in mind that we're multifaceted, there are multiple ways to connect to
0: character. Totally. I think when a lot of people think of casting or, you know, I might venture that if someone were casting something for the very first time, they tend to most likely think of characters as relatively unidimensional and then try to uh, align those dimensions with similar ones in actors, which again is this sort of more what we are calling the traditional model of casting what someone might call the obvious or expected or on the nose area of casting, which in all likelihood, very much probably relies on group stereotypes, right? If you are looking to cast a powerful CEO that has a lot of influence in a company, casting a tall, you know, good looking white man with a, a very, uh, you know, chic looking haircut and, you know, and, and all of these sorts of things that are signals of status. So much of the stereotypes that we were talking about as associated with group, um, are aligned with status and have to also do with historical privilege, which is important. Um, you know, the, the sort of on the nose stereotypes for a character who, uh, is, is the face of innocence, like a Miranda in the Tempest, right? Charactering a woman who, who is sort of rather fragile looking and pale and sheltered and, uh, uh, you know, diminutive and, 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 um, I said pale before, but f- frail, you know, mm-hmm. like someone mm-hmm. who just ha- hasn't been exposed mm-hmm. too much, right? Lacks that,
2: experience.
0: Yeah, like all of those things uh, s- t- 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 tend to sort of dance around each other to communicate something in a very uh, expected and sort of obvious way. Um and so there are probably way more examples of this than we even have time to sort of, like, call people's attention to if you think about what aspects of character are kind of most important. What's the most important thing about Lady Macbeth, right? What is her most important uh, character trait? Her ambition, I would say, right? And and in some ways, her manipulativeness. Sure. Um, that's where, she's, she's a complex character. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I, I, I'm think, like, oh, I, so I think. Oh, it's so obvious. I think you picked, I think you picked two good, two good words You know what to I mean? And her. so, like, people who are associated with groups that are ambitious and potentially manipulative, um... You know, make r- more obvious choices for yeah. that. Um, you probably wouldn't cast someone uh, with a sort of, uh, you know, squeaky sque- voice. Fr- fr- squeaky questioning. Like, I'm not so sure of myself. Um, you know, screw your courage to the sticking place, please. If you don't mind?
2: I want to play that role so badly.
0: <laughs> um, you know but the the opportunity that's missed when you do this sort of more obvious traditional relying on stereotypes there are a couple problems with this um you know, one of them is that pieces that get done over and over and over again, you see the same kind of person. You see yeah. this generation's John Hamm, you see this generation's Marlon Brando, you know, play these roles. That's not, doesn't add anything new to the story. Um, and it also just undersells the complexity of human nature, right? Like we all have these multiple facets. Characters have multiple pa- facets. Mm-hmm. Well written characters, at least, have multiple facets. Mm-hmm. And so, how cool is it to think about? a storytelling opportunity where you pull on something that isn't that is oh has always been part of that character but is not usually foregrounded, right? Yeah. So what if you played instead of Miranda's innocence on her craving for experience right adventure what if she is like get me the hell off this island get me some man friends to dance <laughs> around in a club i'm going out yeah. you know yolo She's sick of hanging yolo with her
2: father <laughs> he's so boring. he is
0: so so like 10 years ago he's like been on this island forever um you know, so I think that that, that, would, that becomes an interesting storytelling I, device.
2: I think there's two things we're talking about is, is you know, regardless of what the actor you hire looks like, mm-hmm. right? What are the aspects of uh, personality, the sort of internal lived experience of that character that you want to bring to the foreground? Some things you just have to do, right? You cannot play um, Mercutio and Romeo and Juliet as timid or quiet. Like, that would be, there might be moments where Mercutio mm-hmm. is that way, but, but you know, his or her whole trajectory does not work that way. Um, But then also just externally, you gave a great example of uh, Queen Elizabeth that you've seen. So Judy Dent playing Queen Elizabeth in Shakespeare in Love. There's lots of good reasons to... to her; She's an amazing actor, mm-hmm. um, but she's a British white woman, so that's appropriate. But you saw uh, another woman in Chicago? I wasn't yeah. able
0: to see it, unfortunately. Yeah. But I just... So they did a production of The Beard of Avon in Chicago, which is a play about Shakespeare's life. And so Queen Elizabeth is a character in the play, much like Queen Elizabeth is a character in Shakespeare in Love, if you've seen that movie, if you haven't been lucky enough to see Beard of Avon. Um, and in Chicago, this was cast with a wonderful um, actress of, of stage and screen named Aura Jones, um, who is... Is a super powerful black woman and you know, it was it was an inspired casting choice because a lot of the aspects of Aura uh, carries herself in a very queenly fashion. Um, there, are, There is a lot queenly that is about Aura, um, but she uh, might not be, again, that sort of obvious first choice because of the sort of racial composition at the time, um, which is, again, a way to bust through some of those stereotypes and to get people thinking about others in more multifaceted ways. And I mean, I think that the role that you're working on right now is another really good (laughs) example of that, right? And so I actually think, uh, and we'll talk a lot more about this when we get into the interview with Tallerie McRae in just a few minutes, but this is a kind of exciting time in casting. I think there are a lot of, Assumptions, like even as you were finishing your sentence, if you're like, "like you would never cast," that. and I was like, "What's she going to say here?" Oh, <laughs> that right. is actually something that people, everyone in the world, will be like, "Yeah, you would never cast that." Yeah, it's an exciting moment in in
2: uh, casting in terms of sort of blowing out, blowing, uh, exploding out all the the assumptions about how to do. It. And I think we have a couple points we want to make.
0: I think that g- that gender is actually one of the things that is changing most rapidly, and so there have been several examples of casting on Broadway. For an example. There is a character in um, Waitress, the musical, uh, that was originated by a man, and the character was written as a man, and they replaced that character with a woman um, without changing the script or the plot, and it wasn't, oh, they didn't cast. Uh, a a woman who is an actress to play it as a man. They changed the gender identity of the character Mm. um, and it still totally worked and they sort of did it without fanfare. Um, You know, similarly, a little bit easier to work in the change because there's a puppet involved, but in Frozen on Broadway, um, Olaf, who is uh, played by uh, a performer who is using a puppet, much like the Timon puppet in Lion King, if you're familiar. Um, You know, Olaf is a male snowman. (laughs)
2: <laughs> uh-huh.
0: <laughs> or at least has always been voiced by a man I don't know if he ever actually I think he refers to himself anyway um, uh-huh. as far as anyone can tell Olaf identifies as a man and uh, they just cast uh, the replacement for the originator of that role on Broadway with a woman who's going to operate the puppet so yeah. the character gender will not be changed but the person operating the puppet yeah. will be a woman and so I don't know I think that it's a really I think there are a lot of times when people uh, there are a lot of things that that people have, used to assume about characters that now they're not Saying, you why? Know, hang on a minute.
2: Yeah, and that includes even the actor's assumption. So I yeah. have this amazing privilege of playing Mercutio this summer in Romeo and Juliet. Now, when one pictures Mercutio, what do you picture? I mean, you picture a dude right? And usually a pretty young one because he's friends with with Romeo. He's in his 20s. I mean, he could even be a teenager. Um, and I know some people have seen it older, but I'm, you know, in, not in my 20s and what? and I'm a woman. And what? it was fun to work with because the language is so delicious and then by the time you get cast, you kind of go, wait, 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 wait. wait. There's an obstacle there, which is I have never pictured myself playing this role because I don't think I look the part. So it's my job to align myself. So I, I sent an email to the director. Director Chris Duvall and and sort of said, "I'm not looking for flattery. Can you just say what you know what your idea here is?" And what's beautiful is it's twofold, which is it's partly has to do with representation. It partly has to do with getting more female actors in Shakespeare plays. So Mercutio, Benvolio's, um, Samson, and Abraham are all going to be women. They're usually men. And so that's one thing where you just have female bodies on stage. And this they're playing women.
0: Yeah, this is very different then. So when Anne was auditioning for this, I sort of somewhat, uh, you know, flippantly was like, oh, that's so funny. I played Benvolio in high school. But I played Benvolio like the way that most high schools play Romeo and Juliet, right? Which is I was... girl. Yeah. I I put on male, you know, Shakespearean-ish clothes whatever yeah. that we could rent for cheap. I stipple brushed on a beard, you know, and I played Benvolio as a man because there weren't enough men. Right. There weren't enough high school men who auditioned. Right. And then I was dating the guy who played Mercutio and got my stipple beard all over him. <laughs> I can picture he had to stubble on his beard too because he was too young to have a beard. <laughs> well, what's happening here is—is is,
2: well, I actually don't yet know the time period because because we haven't you know gotten any of the design ideas of it. But actually, I am. It must be a time. I'm, I'm guessing it's not modern. It might be, uh, but. I am a woman who's choosing to cross-dress, to dress as a man in order to have the power and the agency and the mm-hmm. freedom to live my life the way I want to. Um, and so, you know, I asked him sort of why I aligned with it, and he, he gave me feedback in terms of what he sees in my performance matches the kind of um, overabundance of energy and Life Live Large by mm. Mercutio, and then sort of speaking to the why a woman He said, I'm interested in you, Mercutio, being a woman who's choosing a life as a man with her true gender only known to a very few, um, instead of making gender diverse casting a practice. In this production because of solely a commitment I have towards increasing equality in our work, it also resonates deeply for me as the motor of this play. What happens when this play has women who are forced into relationships with men because they are second-class citizens? And then what happens when there are women who choose to live lives as men? Because that's the only way they can feel safe, serve in the military, et cetera. So he's taking this, he's 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 doubly mm-hmm. serving, he's, he's serving two purposes, which is the representation of more women. And then he's finding sort of really authentic backstory um, and storytelling. To, to support um, women in these roles. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah. And it feeds, you um Kateri on the outline used the word generative. It's like it generates, it isn't my womanness and my not, you know, my my middle-agedness uh, also serves a purpose, which is this idea of Mercutio, and I know Mercutio is sometimes older hanging out with these younger people mm. and that she has had so much more lived experience than they have. And she sees their immaturity to some extent. And that actually is supported by the text. Yeah. Like Mercutio's impatience with Romeo. Yeah. Like, come on, dude, you know, that th- my age actually helps tell that story. So that was exciting that these, these non-traditional choices actually open up a whole other correct way of looking at the character.
0: I mean, I think that there's... I I do think that it's generative to think of characters in a multifaceted way and to think of performers in a multifaceted way. And, you know, I think that neither of us are casting directors, um, but you would imagine that from a storytelling standpoint that you might maybe want to limit yourself to tweaking, like, one or two um, either identity markers or personality sort of types, like, that you could have... um, that, that you, you wouldn't want to cast someone who is a mismatch in, almo- in, right. in almost all of these dimensions, um, that that would be confusing and, and muddle the story, right? But that you can maybe push on audiences yeah. to to accept something that they might not have been expecting in one yeah. or, or maybe max two of these dimensions.
2: And I, it, it, that ties into uh, our fabulous guest from the last episode, Sylvia Gregory, did an audition workshop with my students, and she brings in this exercise, which I'm going to now use all the time, of, of the actors... Um, own personality opposites, and so she has uh. you write down dark and light. Dark not always being bad, and light mm-hmm. not always being good. Sort of your dark qualities. Well, I can be Anne can be impatient, right? Mm. Anne can be competitive. Like question mark. <laughs> Anne can be quick to anger, right? Anne's light qualities are: she's optimistic, she's cheerful, she's a people pleaser. Mm. Um, and then finding if Mercutio runs dark often, or that's the that's the stereotype of the character. To finding the opposite. Within that, um, within that moment, so that you're at, you're, you're you're building nuance, right? You're building a complex character that has these opposing energies mm-hmm. or imposing actions inside of it, rather than just this one kind of monolithic, static, stereotypical um, action.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of the, the work that I, um, have done. So again, Talia Goldstein, who was a, a guest on our last season, um, she and I have talked a lot about the role that, um, you know, getting training and acting might play for, uh, pro-social things like empathy. And a lot of her work, um, has shown that like, you know, kids and adolescents, when they are, take acting classes, become more empathetic. Um, and part of that is just perspective taking, right? Like you get you you when you align yourself with someone who you didn't originally align yourself, with, you read someone on the page and think that's not me, and then you get up on stage and you embody them, and you you read their words and you play with their what ifs. That that is a uh, a, a kind of walking around in someone else's shoes. Yeah. That it, what engend- engenders empathy. The thing I like about uh, thinking about casting in this multi dimensional way is that. When you are, as an actor, get to try on a character who's different from you, you increase your empathy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know that that doesn't align with you. When you're an audience member and you see someone on stage who you didn't assume had particular qualities, but then over the course of the play, you see embodying those qualities, that changes your stereotypes, right? One of the things that counters stereotypic beliefs is exposure to counter-stereotypic examples, right? Another thing that um, combats people making stereotypes and de-individualizing others is when you are exposed to multiple aspects of someone per- someone's personality, right? If you know about their intersectional identities or if you know about their preferences and, and experiences, yeah. more that gives you more yeah. information than that group membership. And yeah. so I think this departure Uh from more traditional on the nose, obvious casting is one way to actually be more socially responsible and using theater as a tool to get audience members to say, wow, I never would have thought that someone like X would do something like Y, but I saw it in this play and I believed it. And I went along with it.
2: Yeah. As a prologue to Tallery, um, I'm just looking at this. uh, I Googled authentic casting and I'm going to ask Tallery to define that for us, I think. There's a really interesting quote in the LA Times. If a role is written for a particular ethnicity, sexual identity, gender, or disability, how far should the creative community go to find an actor who checks that particular box? And should the fact that many traditionally marginalized groups are fighting for better representation be taken into consideration? Who has the right to tell what stories and who gets to make that decision? I think those are amazing questions uh, and we'll, we'll talk to Talary and begin to answer those.
0: Sweet. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with our interview. Bye. I am especially delighted uh, that we have a guest today. Her name is Tallery McCray, And in addition to probably being the best guest we could probably find on inclusion and access and its relationship to casting, uh, she's my twin sister. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you for being here, Tallery. Thanks for having me. This is so fun to nerd out with the two of you. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who haven't known Tallery for your entire life, uh, first of <laughs> all, too bad for you. But here's a little bit of her background. So Tallery McCrae is a theater artist, educator, and access and inclusion specialist who's based in Louisville, Kentucky. She partners with t- students and teachers from pre-K through high school and beyond. In recent years, she's worked as an access and inclusion specialist for Actors Theatre of Louisville, Indiana Repertory Theatre, and has presented with the American Alliance for Theatre and Education, or AATE, and the Leadership Exchange in Arts and Disability, or LEAD. So, thanks again for being here and sharing all of your experience and insight and research and uh, opinions and uh, all of that as it relates to casting. Our first question is to just have you talk a little bit about whether you, uh, you know, Anne and I sort of see a continuum and maybe you don't see it in a continuous way. But can you talk a little bit about the progression of casting from the sort of least inclusive or if I may start to put words in your mouth, maybe the most kind of obvious or traditional or you know, least imaginative to the sort of most radically inclusive types of casting? Can you sort of walk us through what that continuum looks like?
1: I've never thought of it as a continuum in that way. I often think of it as a timeline. So if that makes sense, I might kind of start from there. Um, because I think that, in my opinion, whenever you do a, a production, um, you are always having a conversation between the time that that production was originally created and the time in which the production is being performed. Yeah. And so your the conversation between that, depending on how much time has elapsed, can be relatively straightforward or can be incredibly complex. Mm. So when I think about casting, I also think about it in a timeline. And I think about how traditionally, decades and decades ago, there were a lot of assumptions about casting that we don't have right now. So the two that come to my mind have to do with race and gender, right? So decades and decades, perhaps even hundreds of years ago, um, a lot of Western theaters had casting practices that cast white males in – the majority, if not all of the roles. Right. And that casting practice changed and women were so became socially acceptable to be on stage. Right. In recent history, um, there in more recent history, I should say, there has also been a shift in terms of race on stage. Right. That half a century ago, or a century ago, uh, there was a majority of white people, white bodies on stage, and that that has shifted, not to say that that work is done by any means, but that it is now socially acceptable for a wide variety of people, humans, to also occupy that space on stage. So what I spend most of my time doing is thinking about the historical and kind of traditional um, representations of the disability community and people with disabilities, um, and what that has looked like in the past, and then what that can tell us about the casting practices that we are either doing or that we hope to be doing today in 2019. So I like to think of it in that kind of broad timeline.
0: So if you take any particular type of representation, whether it is gender or race or disability, can you walk us through what maybe some of that progression would look like as uh, representation increases, especially as it relates to casting, are the the things that are taken into consideration when casting someone who has not been represented on stage before, does that have a sort of like, you know, initial like introductory phase and then move on to more (laughs) sophistication in a way?
1: Yeah, so if I can answer that again slightly indirectly by thinking about kind of historical representation, I always think that representation on stage is a communication about our perceptions as a society. So if we think about the perceptions of any particular group, and the group that I spend the most time thinking about is people with disabilities. So I'm going to talk about disability, the group of disability and disability culture. So historically, I'm going to do a really fast history lesson as quickly as I possibly can. Excellent. So if you think about perceptions of disability as they started, um, we're not talking a couple decades ago. We're not even talking um, half a century ago. We're talking centuries and centuries and centuries ago. The societal understanding and perception of a person with a disability or a person that had a difference was that that difference uh, that was displayed on the outside was showing some kind of inner turmoil. Yeah. Right. So, this is what disability theorists call the kind of inside outside theory. And that is good news is that is not how most people today think about disability. The bad news is that it is still a huge storytelling shortcut in several of the plays and television shows and films that exist today. So, the two examples that I think of in the uh film and storytelling uh and theater world are Richard the Third, right? Yeah. It's kind of uh iconic villain that mm-hmm. has this Outer difference that is then indicative of something wrong on the inside. Mm-hmm. Richard the Third is a great example of that. The other one in popular culture that I always like to bring up is Captain Hook, right? So he's this supervillain, and why is he so grumpy? It might be because he has a hook instead of a hand, um, <clears throat> and it's
0: in his name. I mean, I think perhaps that that story is usually geared towards younger audiences. The shortcut becomes even more obvious, right? right. Like what. You know, what would we call this one? Captain Hook. Hook. That's the most important thing (laughs) about him. Not Captain Tom.
1: (laughs) So as we progress in history, we also change our perceptions uh, about difference and disability in society. And we come to a place where we start thinking about Um, disability as this separation between those people who have a disability and those people who do not. And we also have a power imbalance between those people that have a disability and those people that do not. And the people that do not have a disability, the non-disabled people, have... um, In many ways, a feeling of social obligation that their job is to take care of, to support, to nurture the people with disabilities because they are so different and they can do things in different ways. And in some ways, they can't do things that people that don't have disabilities can do. So we must support them and help them. The shortcut to this um, this. Perception is the charity model, right? Mm -hmm. Which is sometimes thought of as the pity model. So the idea that people without disabilities have a responsibility to take care of people with, which is not in itself a bad idea. It's the, it's that power imbalance that is really tricky. Um, The, the most iconic representation of this um, in stories on stage and on screen, uh, there's a bunch of writing on this in um, disability uh, studies is Tiny Tim, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. Um, the trick with tiny Tim is that his only purpose in the story is to, uh, either make people feel bad for him or make people feel good about themselves. Mm. Um, there's a shortcut for this in disability culture. We call it inspiration porn. Um, and you think about pornography, right? And that the goal of pornography is to make the viewer feel really good with very little regard to the actual person that is doing the thing. Um, so the idea that somebody is objectified with the end goal of somebody else feeling really good about themselves. Um, when you look at disability through this lens, you can see that this model is still really present um, in a lot of media outlets, right? So if you're looking at a story, um, so a story that'll pop up a lot in your feed is about um, a high schooler that took a classmate who has a disability to the prom, right? Which yeah. is which is not in itself a bad thing. But when you think about the way that that's reported on, when the people being interviewed are all non-disabled, when the narrative that's being told is about how the non-disabled people have made a sacrifice, have done a good thing, have extended themselves, have done that, and you have very little information about the lived experience of the other side of that prom date, right, the other person who also had a prom experience, Um, To me, that feels imbalanced, right? And that feels like what we're doing is we're making people without disabilities feel really good, sometimes at the expense of a person with lived experience of having a disability.
2: Thank you. Um, I was really excited looking at your notes when you you wrote about the two lenses of responsible representation, social motivation versus dramaturgical aesthetic motivation. Can you um, describe both of those? And um, I don't know if there's any comparing going on, but can you just let our listeners know what you mean by both of those?
1: Sure. So part of, I think that a lot of artists are socially motivated to make quote unquote the right choice when you're thinking about casting and when you're thinking about casting somebody that is different or that is underrepresented. So one of the things that you want to do when you're thinking about a social motivation for making a non-traditional casting choice or an underrepresented casting choice is you want to know really well some of the traditional representations and stereotypes that you're up against. Okay. Right? So okay. If, you're, if you're looking at casting somebody with a disability, you're going to want to know about that, um, that, that idea of inside out. You're going to want to know about inspiration porn. You're going to want to know about the idea that if you're thinking about disability – Medically, you might be um, inadvertently looking for a cure or a way to fix a person with a disability, right? You might be thinking about a disability as a person that is overly preoccupied with their disability and couldn't possibly have another conflict in their life. So those are really the main kind of traditional understandings of disability. And ideally, if you're socially motivated, then you're motivated to thinking about disability as a social perception and that the conflict that you have is not an individual internal conflict as a character, but that your, your relationship um, as a person with a disability might actually be a social conflict. It might actually be a conflict in relationship with another person or another idea or another right. institution because that person mm-hmm. misunderstands who you are and what your disability is, not because your disability is inherently bad or wrong. Right, or right. Okay. So to me, that, that transitions into this idea of how casting an actor with a disability in any role yeah. can offer such a rich landscape to be mined. When you think about the skills that you need to be an actor and to portray any kind of conflict that's going on, to understand any kind of obstacle, big or small, you want to have that be in relationship to someone or something else. To me, that is the stronger Mm. um, storytelling choice than simply displaying a a 100% internal conflict of... Something that feels flatter, right? That you're wishing to be something else, that you want to be something else. The dynamism in that is that it is in relationship with someone else and so therefore can be changed. Because wishing you didn't have a disability, first of all, is an incredibly non-disabled thing to do. And second of all, that doesn't give you a lot of places to go as a character. Uh
2: It gets me excited. I'm just I'm looking at your notes. You said it's really hard to other, quote, quote unquote, other and objectify someone if they're in the room with you. And then it gets me thinking about Jill Soloway talking about transparent and saying, you know, I want it, the people who are used to being um, the objects of attention. I want them to be the subject of the story rather than just the object so that, that the people viewing at the audience have an opportunity to see it from that perspective of not just the sort of traditional you know, usual perspective. Does that connect? It connects in my brain.
1: <laughs> For me, Anne, that's the transition from objectifying someone from borderline, um, like we were saying before, borderline pornography, right? right. In that in that definition of I feel really good about this, but I'm not really understanding yeah. that other person that's part of that, to saying, no, no, We are in this together, and together we have some knots to untie, we have some things to figure out, we have some misunderstandings, but the potential for change is now really fluid and dynamic.
0: And we were talking about one of the ways that casting can engender empathy is when you portray anyone as more multifaceted, anyone that an audience member... Um, Doesn't immediately identify with as having multiple preferences, as having, you know, liking this kind of food, being angry when that thing happens to them, that the more multifaceted a portrayal, the more that you engender empathy, like true understanding and empathy. And so I think that this, like, departure from unidimensional, uh, you know, unidimensional characterization of a mental state is part of what you're talking about, which is that the other thing from the sort of literature, not on empathy, but on countering stereotypes, right? How to combat group stereotypes that might be harmful is presenting counter-stereotypic examples, right? So just um, having uh, people who defy stereotypes and what's interesting about the literature and counter-stereotypic examples is that that also works best when you are portraying people as multifaceted, right? Like yeah. it is, it is, it is better than like portraying a counter-stereotypic example is better than portraying a stereotypic example. If you do it unidimensionally, if the, like the one thing that characterizes this person is that they, they do defy your expectations about group membership, but it's even better. It's even richer when they defy your expectations. And there are other interesting things going on. (laughs) Right. Um, Because otherwise it's been shown that people um, will write it off as a one-off. They'll be like, Oh, that person was an exception to the rule, but I bet there's still a rule. Right. Whereas the more like, nuanced you get with portraying someone the more people just depart from using their group membership as a shortcut for anything at all um and just consider humans as like other humans having lots of other stuff going on and having some experiences that are shared and some experiences that aren't shared and let's be curious about everybody
1: so, disability scholar Victoria Ann Lewis, who does a lot of writing about disability in theater, and also Carrie Sandal as well. Um, those are my, the two main go to scholars that I look at in terms of disability in theater. Um, they actually talk about that strategy, Kateri, in terms of one way to combat a traditional representation of disability on stage is to simply have more than one character that has a disability. in a play. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when you think about dramaturgical and aesthetic inclusion and casting in that way, you are automatically making a richer, deeper choice by saying, not only are we going to have one person with a disability, but we are going to have multiple. Mm -hmm. So Anne, your example of Richard III is a great one. There is a theater company in New York City that did a production of Richard III, I want to say five or six years ago where the only actor in the company that did not have a disability was the actor playing Richard. Oh, cool. That's very cool. (laughs) Everybody else had a disability. The woman who played uh, Queen Anne was named Anita Hollander, and she is an amputee. And at one point during rehearsal, in that very first scene where things go from like zero to 60 really fast, she turned to the director and she said, I'm so angry. I want to take off my leg and beat him with it. <laughs> and the director said, "Do, do it, it. Do it."
0: <laughs> we all know what the right <laughs> answer is.
1: There <laughs> is that not an energized telling of Richard the yeah. Third. I don't know what it is.
2: <laughs> yeah, Kateri uses this word, uh, "generative." When you do this sort of non-traditional, exciting casting, um, that it can it can just generate beautiful storytelling and relationships that you maybe could not have anticipated, you know, before you actually just did it. So I'm sure that moment of her actually doing that potentially led to some wonderful storytelling for the rest of that.
0: Do you, do you have other, do you have other favorite examples of times when people were able to sort of transcend or, or be ahead of the kind of cultural, um, zeitgeist at the time in, in order to, in, in a way that synergized w- with storytelling that you thought was, was really remarkable?
1: Yeah. So in the fall of 2017, Indiana Repertory Theater uh, worked with me because they were doing a production of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime*. Mm-hmm. Uh, whose main character in that play, Christopher, um, it's never said in the text, but he portrays a lot of different autistic behaviors, right? He's very closely identified um, as autistic. And, uh, in 2017, Indiana Rep was the first theater in the United States to cast an actor with autism in that role, awesome. which is awesome. super exciting and really great. And, and we can talk about that. Um, a few months later, in the spring of 2018, uh, they did a production of the same show in um, Minneapolis at Mixed Blood Theater. And they did not cast an actor with autism in the role of Christopher. They cast an actor with cerebral palsy in that role which is really interesting. Um, And when I talk to my colleagues in the autism community about that, um, they have mixed feelings. They say, we think it's really important that you look for an actor that has autism. But then there's another feeling about it, which is, um, I think it's really cool. And I'm really grateful that that company portrayed autism as multifaceted, as not simply a cisgendered straight white man, mm. which is the the overarching portrayal of autism in society today, to say how interesting that we have a person with multiple disabilities in that role. The other thing that Mixed Blood Theater did in that show, which I thought was really interesting, was they cast a second actor with a disability in that show in a role that is not specified as having any kind of disability. So again, by multiplying the number of people with disabilities in that show, you are taking away the potential for stereotype, but you're also creating a synergy between Christopher, the role that was cast as another person with a disability was his teacher, Siobhan. Mm -hmm. So then the relationship in that show between those two characters has a new dimensionality to it that it didn't have before when you simply have a kid with autism and his non-disabled teacher. That was Reagan? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And... And I initially thought when I heard that Reagan was cast, I initially assumed that she was cast as Christopher's mother, hmm. which is a really interesting um relationship in that play anyway, and to think about the actor playing the mother in that story having a disability got me really excited and then I checked with Reagan and she was like, "Yeah, no, I was the teacher." <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're very plugged in um to the professional theater scene and a lot of people call you to consult about casting choices. Yes. So what kinds of questions are people asking that you feel are good questions that are, that people are sort of working in, in, in the right direction when, when they're checking in with you? Like what are th- what are those sorts of conversations like?
1: The reality is, you know, we're kind of talking a little bit about the, the best examples, the best of right Typically, when a theater approaches me and says they want to look at inclusive casting, they're often looking at making an accurate casting choice. So casting the character of Christopher in Curious Incident, The Dog in the Nighttime* using an actor with autism, which is fantastic because it addresses the imbalance that we have in representation of people with autism on the stage. So the disability, the professional... Theater community within the disability world would say that is the bottom level first step in responsible representation is making sure that if you have a character that is written in with a certain disability, that you find an actor with that same lived experience to portray it because there has been a long history of privilege coming in to play that role over lived experience. So, a lot of people will say that 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 accuracy is very important. And I do not disagree with them. I do think that um, people with disabilities are wildly underrepresented and misrepresented. And so we have a responsibility to find those actors, to cast them and to train them in the spaces that we have. That being said, That is very hard to do on a practical level in many ways. Um, Sometimes you don't have the resources to cast out of town. Sometimes you don't have the um, accommodations that an actor would need to be successful in that role. Sometimes you don't have the contacts to even know how to broaden your search and reach out. In that case, I am a huge fan of what I like to call restorative representation. So if you can't look at an accurate representation of a person with a disability in a play, think about how you might approach an authentic representation of that, which might not be 100% accurate, but is going to address the inherent power dynamic that needs to be restored. So the example of casting an actor with cerebral palsy in the role of Christopher is an example of that, right? So you don't have the exact same disability, but you have somebody from the disability community that's represented. There's actually a great example of restorative casting when it comes to race and ethnicity um, that I find really useful. It does not It's not always a one-to-one comparison with disability, but I found this one really useful. So um, back in 2012... The Oregon Shakespeare Festival did a production of The White Snake, which is based on a Chinese folktale. And the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is a repertory company, which means they've got the same actors that are doing multiple shows all at the same time. So basically, it was not realistic for that company to say that they had 100% of people who had an Asian-American background to portray the characters in The White Snake. It just wasn't possible. Mm -hmm. So they said, what can we do to think about restorative representation? We know we cannot make it accurate, so how can we make it authentic and restorative? And the solution that they came up with with, I thought was really interesting. They cast all of the main roles in the white snake with people who identified as Asian American. They cast minor roles with other ethnicities. And then they looked at their production of our town that was happening in the same slot as the white snake. And they cast the role of Emily, which is arguably one of the biggest roles in our town as an Asian American actor with no explanation. It wasn't part of the aesthetic. It wasn't a statement. They weren't trying to say something. They were just saying, um, we believe it's important for you to take up space in a featured role. um, And this is how we are going to give you the space and restore the representation more globally rather than thinking about an individual production. How can we do that as a company? Help me understand I don't think you're using
2: authentic and restorative as synonyms, are you? They're in relationship to each other. Like if you just help me understand the difference when you talk about authentic casting versus restorative representation, I guess, what the, how those two things are different from each other.
1: I think they are in very close relationship with each other. Um, And I often will, to me, it is useful to use the word authentic when I am thinking about Casting an individual actor in an individual role. Okay. For me, at that level, thinking about authenticity, and I usually use that word in relationship with accuracy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Sometimes and not always, I think in film, accuracy is really important because part of the storytelling aesthetic in yeah. film is to show a complete world, right? Yeah. And in yeah. theater, we have the advantage yeah. of. Metaphor, right? Yeah. We have ah, we you have speak a little
2: bit more. Leeway. You speak my language. I feel like all of this makes a little more sense in theater, and then when you get into film and and you know f- two more two dimensional storytelling it gets harder. Yeah, yeah.
1: It, it does get. I think I think we have an advantage as theater artists, right? Yeah, we can yeah. we can do this in a little better way. Metaphor. So to me, um, accuracy and authenticity are helpful when I am a, when I am a director or a casting director that is looking at an individual role in an individual play. Mm -hmm. And I know that the audience is going to be making a one-to-one comparison between how this character is written and how they are portrayed on Mm -hmm. stage. For me, the idea of restorative representation is bigger. Okay. It is a little bit more global and it answers that question of it's really hard to other someone if they are in the room with you. So when I think about restorative representation, I'm thinking about a, a place in which accuracy is not possible I've I've exhausted my resources to be as accurate as possible and as just as possible, yeah. and that is not uh, avail- those resources are not available to me for whatever reason. Yep. So now I'm going to think more globally. I'm going to think about casting that individual role as carefully as I can, but. I'm also going to think about the other roles in the play. How are they represented? Mm. I'm going to think about the makeup of the design team and the dramaturgs on the project and the stage managers that are in the rehearsal room and who is in that janitor of space that is helping tell that story because their perspective can also influence the way that story is told, even though it might not be as directly as having an accurate casting choice.
0: I, I think that's really super helpful to think about the authenticity in terms of the the, the alignment of actor and character and to think about a restorative representation um, at a more global. Yeah. There's room to do things like you might, uh, if I can put words in your mouth, tell like you might say the casting of an Asian American actor as Emily doesn't, there isn't a particular alignment of that identity P- marker with Emily that was a storytelling mechanism in that show it was a broader representational issue and what I, I think you were hinting at but didn't say is that the company said we actually think it's higher impact to feature an actress in a leading role and make audience members if any of them dare to think why is this asian american then ha- think the second question of why not why couldn't it be um you know rather than casting a half a dozen, a dozen more Asian American actors in small roles in white snake, which might not make as much of an impact. You know, what I, like uh, uh, yes. maybe I'm putting words in their mouth in terms of their no. rationale, but that, that, um, that there's more achieved in the restorative mission with the higher profile casting potentially than the, the, then filling out the cast of white snake unnecessarily, uh, uh, which also wasn't possible
1: due to the rep nature. Yes. Yeah. And, And for all groups that have been underrepresented and oppressed, the comparison of their experience to normal is one of the biggest pieces of oppression that can be addressed by casting Emily as an Asian-American actor and saying, this is normal. There is no neutral in this world. There is no, you know, I always like to think of neutral as a very individual thing when I think about actors that can, for example, um, position their bodies in a neutral way, that's different for every body. Right. And the the fallacy of normal and neutral is so tenuous. It's so fragile because there's no way to be a hundred percent neutral in any body. Um, so I think that that is part of it. The other piece of it that I think is interesting to think about is that again, Disability is only one piece of when you're trying to cast a performer in a role. So if I can use a personal example, um, I have cerebral palsy, and I spent most of my 20s angry at the world that no one had cast me as Laura in The Glass Menagerie, Mm -hmm. right? Because my disability and the way that Laura's disability is described in The Glass Menagerie match up really well, Mm -hmm. right? I, I have that disability. However... As an overeager 20-something year old actor, I did not make the connection that my style, my type, my own specificity and detail work that I bring to that kind of role didn't match up with the the specifics of who Laura was as a person. She is delicate she's fragile you're totally gutsier than than her (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i'm ask kateri am i right i'm a character actor (sighs) yeah right yeah no you're like i do scout. i do like yeah you're gutsier than
0: her you're like louder than her you're less apologetic than she is you're kind of awesomer than her
1: (laughs) I did that scene so many times in acting class and I was like, why is this not working? Well, it's not a good fit for who I am, whether or not I have the disability. Right. 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 right? So that's also important to remember.
2: There's something I'm trying to articulate, um, I have the opportunity to play Mercutio this summer, Tallery, which is usually a dude, right? And I, what feels generative from a sort of selfish actor perspective is I never saw myself in that role before. And so to have the opportunity to kind of dig in and empathize with a, with a character human being, right, that I never sort of spent time hanging out with is, for me, generative. And hopefully that translates to the audience, right? And in terms of us, we've talked a, lo- um, we've talked a lot about... How these these non traditional ways of casting can create more empathy in the audience, right, and more empathy probably for the actors. I just find that really exciting that we ourselves in these roles tend to oppress or um, uh, quiet aspects of ourselves that we're actually capable of playing and portraying um, because we just have never taken the we've never had the opportunity or given ourselves the opportunity to see ourselves in these different kinds of roles.
1: And I think in my research, the theater companies, I mean, I'm so jealous that you're doing this uh, work in Denver because Mm. Denver has one of the most Mm -hmm. exciting theaters Mm -hmm. for inclusion on the planet, Mm -hmm. if you ask me. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I go see a show at Family Theater and I see the way that they've thought about how their own identities interact with these characters and tell stories in brand new ways, I can't get through it without having goosebumps all over my body. Yeah, yeah. And part of that has to do with the fact that people with disabilities inherently understand conflict. You know, we inherently understand obstacle. Yeah. Um, It's just not always in the deeply personalized way that you would think about it, that actors with disabilities understand what makes a play tick and what makes it work. And their lived experience of what they've brought, the ingenuity that they've brought to their own lives in fitting into a world that is inaccessible to them. Yeah. In their own relationship with a non-disabled normal, quote unquote, yeah. that can give such a richness to a performance. And you've also, I know
0: in some of your work, you've had the pleasure of working with teenage playwrights um, so, who have disabilities and some who don't. And I, some of the like snippets I hear at the end of your day, I mean, some of the most amazing play ideas, you know, have, have come from, from some
1: young playwrights with disabilities, which is so awesome. And sometimes they write about disability directly, and sometimes they don't. Mm. So I'll give you two quick examples. Um, I have a student I'm working with right now. I just came from teaching his class an hour ago. Um, And he uh, is a student at the Kentucky School for the Blind. And he is writing a play that takes place in a junkyard between an old industrial fan that does not have a motor that works And a brand new Roomba that does not know how they ended up in the junkyard. (laughs) Um, And it's fantastic and super imaginative. There's another writer that I work with at the School for the Blind. And years ago, he wrote a play um, that is set in a world of darkness, pitch black. The two leaders of the world were born blind And that is the highest social status you can have in this world. Uh Most people in the world are sighted, and some over the years have tried blinding themselves in order to receive higher social status. But what is most valuable in that world is a child who is born blind. So the play begins with the two leaders of the world sharing with each other that they've heard a rumor that a blind child has been born and has not yet been presented to them, that the that the people in the world are hiding a blind child from them. I want to see this play so much. Right? <laughs> so based on
0: your work and this trajectory you, you see, like historically from gender to race to disability, where do you think inclusion is ca- in casting is going next? Are there any aspects of identity that are currently underrepresented that you think are are also under-considered, that no one is even sort of beginning this journey of, of, of advocating for restorative representation.
1: Yes, and I can't even think of the identity markers that have been underrepresented yet. I mean, that one's really tough. I am really encouraged by the shift in the regional theaters around the country that are doing the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime because that story... The first time that an actor with autism played that role in the United States, including its run on Broadway, was fall of 2017 at Indiana Repertory Theater and Syracuse Stage. It was a co-production. Yeah. One year later, uh, a production was done here in Louisville at Actors Theater of Louisville, and the associate artistic director who directed that show told her casting associate, I do not want to see an actor unless they have autism. I do not want to see a neurotypical actor audition for this role. And that happened. She auditioned several people. She said she learned so much about the role, even from watching the audition tapes. Um, She said at the end of the day, she had three viable options for casting an incredibly large role. She went out on a limb. She cast an actor she had never worked with before and had never met with before. And he was phenomenal. Hmm. Um, And now it is, it is becoming socially unacceptable to cast a neurotypical actor in that role in this country. And that is really exciting to me. And I think that that can happen with any subset of disability with the right kind of energy behind it. And man, that energy in this country is growing rapidly. And that's really exciting.
0: Awesome. awesome. That is a really very fast pace of uh, of change in mindset. Um, and if there's anything that gives me hope about the last, you know, half a decade in our country that has a lot of unhopeful things about it is that I feel like the pace of change is by necessity increasing. And that's really awesome. Uh, This actually gets me to a question I was meaning to ask Anne before, but it actually relates to some of the stuff we're talking about, Tal, is that I think that there's, I think people tend to have an internal hierarchy of the, um, of the types of lived experience that it is uh, easier or or more difficult to imagine or the types of lived experience um, that can be um, swapped out for one another. Um, So just as an example, I've noticed that – you know, people tend, th- th- I picked up on this because I'm really interested in what people think makes good acting. Um, and there are certain, <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, and there are certain, uh, there are certain things that people tend to be overly impressed with. Like, oh my yes. gosh, did you realize that yes. that guy is gay and he paid, played a straight man and I completely believe he was in love with that yes. woman as though sexuality is something that would be so difficult mm-hmm. yes. that all the acting tools, whereas mm-hmm. if you say, can you believe it? That person was pretending that they were in the 1800s hundreds, but I know they've only lived in the, in the, in the 2000s. Like that's right. not impressive, but the sexuality thing is. And then on the flip side, in terms of, you know, what you were talking about in terms of accurate casting, there seems to be uh, a spoken or, or uh, at least unspoken, maybe there's a spoken, you know, prioritization of certain types of lived experiences yeah. as being acceptable okay. to swap out and others that are don't.
2: I think it's just supporting what Katiri said, the idea of how much lived is, when we go down the identity markers of this person? Where do we want to do the accurate casting in terms of identity markers, and where do we not concern ourselves with those? And I think it comes down probably to storytelling, whatever we decide that storytelling is.
1: Yes. So, this I'm Katrina, I'm so glad you asked that question because there was something I wanted to say um, in my general piece that I forgot. Oh, cool. Um, so, within the professional performer community of people with disabilities there is a joke that's not really a joke that goes like this all you need to do to get an oscar is be a non-disabled actor yep. playing a disabled character yep. i think what's impressive there is technique right i think what's impressive there is i i can't even imagine that that person took it on but there's also some oppression in there right there is totally. an assumption that that non-disabled actor was so smart and kind and empathetic to understand what it must have been like to not move for that long, blah, 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 which I am uninterested in as a human being. I'm like, there are people that don't move a lot. I'm over that. I want to know how that person tells this story in an interesting way. Yeah. Right. So for me, it's more of a flaw in the writing and the story that you're trying to tell. If what you're really impressed with is the technique of a non-disabled actor who can accurately portray disability, for me, that that doesn't hold a lot of weight because there are people that accurately portray disability all the time. They have disabilities. Yeah, yeah. I'm more interested in how that lived experience bumps up against a story that you're telling, be it traditional or non-traditional, and what that looks like. And I'm also, and and I feel like this is another podcast, but I'm also really interested in how we look at our our actor and performer training to provide alternatives for some of the just non-disabled assumptions that exist. Yeah in actor training because some of the tools that actors with disabilities have are super interesting for any person to use just offers an alternative to some of the kind of more traditional paths that training has taken yeah it was great to have reagan on the podcast because we
2: her her um interview was after physicality and i was talking about neutral physicality and then i realized like that's (laughs) That's not neutral physicality for everybody. Um, And and she talked uh, about her experience in graduate school at UC San Diego and how how the movement teacher Charlie Oates had to translate the exercises. And that was generative and probably useful for everyone in the room.
1: I like the word translation because translation implies an equity of cultures. Mm. So there's one culture of movement translated into another culture of movement. Yeah. Um, sometimes the word accommodation, which we use a lot in accessibility has an implied normal to it. Um, but the idea, so there's a, there are some, there are several great dance companies that translate sitting dancing to standing dancing and vice versa. There's no value judgment on whether you're a sitting dancer or a standing dancer and you can do the same move. It's just going to be translated in a different way.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Tal, thanks so much for chatting with us. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to take some of the resources you mentioned and put them up on the website in case yeah. any of our listeners are curious. Thank you for your time and your work. And Thank you, Tal, you so much. You rock. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you so much for listening. We want to thank Jonathan Howard, our sound engineer, for always doing amazing work. We and couldn't do this without you. And, and webmaster general and general technical composer. amazing
0: person. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and we also want to thank DU for providing us with two grants. Without them, we could not make this podcast. The first one is the CAMF Creative Arts Materials Fund and the FRF, the Faculty Research Fund.
0: Awesome. And if you like what you're hearing, um, feel free to go into iTunes, which is where most of you are listening, and uh, give us a quick rating or uh, subscribe to us because Apple keeps track of those things. And so you'll help other people find us if you do those two things. Thanks a lot. Bye.